So what does cause a crash? When you have normal supply and demand metrics, when you've normally got two to three million houses on the market and interest rates start to go up, people, you know, people can't pay as much. So prices will come down. We're speaking today about real estate, commercial and residential. What are the impacts to the real estate market and what can we look forward to in terms of the home prices? Uh, and of course, for investors, whether or not now is a good time to get into the markets. We're talking about this subject with our next guest, Greg Dickerson. He is a serial entrepreneur, consultant, and real estate developer. Greg, welcome to the show. I've worked with you several times on Twitter. First time on YouTube. Pleasure hosting you. Thank you for being here. Hey, David, thanks for having me. Yes, it's a pleasure to meet you somewhat in person, you know, finally after a couple of Twitter spaces, a couple of phone calls. Yeah, uh, closest we'll get until actually, you know, meeting in person. I'm in Canada, you're uh, you're in down the uh, US. We'll talk about uh, real estate markets over here up in Canada where I'm based, Vancouver. Uh, people have been calling this market the most ridiculous market in North America in terms of valuations for quite some time actually. And yet, valuations continue to expand, prices continue to go up, seemingly defying gravity. So before we talk about specific real estate markets, I'll just ask you, generally speaking, what drives prices? I know that's a very complicated question. Um, a lot of forces go into it, but just based on your experience developing real estate, what do you think are the primary drivers of value? You know, obviously, real estate's hyper-local, so every market's different, every you know city uh, state, every neighborhood, street, and every position on that street is completely different. But in general terms, overall, it's supply and demand. But the two factors that really drive values in real estate are um, the the debt, the cost of the debt, and the availability of the debt. So you have to be able to borrow the money and you got to be able to borrow it cheap. Traditionally, as interest rates drop, prices go up. As interest rates go up, prices drop. We're in a dichotomy right now where interest rates are are at higher levels than we've seen in 20 years. Some you know plus or minus, but you know prices are still up and they're not coming down because there's no inventory. So inventory is a big issue that we've never had uh, really ever in the history of the housing market. We've generally usually reached a point of oversupply uh, like we did back in 2008-9. So I was a, a investor and developer back in 2008-9. I went through that housing crisis. I was a builder. I was building homes as a home builder. I was building commercial properties. I was developing real estate, doing a lot of things in 2008-9 when that crash happened. And, uh, you know, what drove prices back then was, you know, anybody could borrow money and the debt was cheap. So that's traditionally what's going to drive your real estate market. But like I said, you know, since the pandemic uh, and since the record low interest rates and the mortgage rate lockdown, uh, you know, people are not willing to sell their house and walk away from a 3% mortgage in exchange for a 7% mortgage. And even if they could sell their house for 3%, uh, mortgage right now, if they could exchange that mortgage and keep it, there's nothing to buy in most areas. You know, I know you're in Vancouver, you know, I'm on the East coast of the United States, but I think, you know, from what I've heard of Canada, the Australian real estate market's correcting a little bit, UK is a little bit different, but in Canada specifically, I know prices are through the roof and inventory levels are, you know, at, at record lows there as well. People um, often forget that uh, 2008 may have been I guess the Lehman collapse may have expedited uh, the collapse of everything else, but the housing collapse kind of came first. And so if you look at the Case-Shiller Index, uh, the housing market, at least from the Case-Shiller Index perspective, it peaked around late 2006, and then it started rolling over. By 2007, uh, prices already had started dropping. Uh, and then, of course, we know what happened throughout 2008, 2009. Did you notice any signs of a slowdown even prior to 2008? Absolutely. So in our market, 0405 was the peak. 
So that was the peak of the market. That's when I sold all of my real estate. I sold my building company and I saw the slowdown coming at that time. So I sold everything and took a step back. And that's when I started looking at, you know, other things. I, I had some businesses I was investing in, some restaurants, you know, some other companies. And then I saw things start to pick back up again, like you said, 06, 07, right towards the peak. So I started building and developing again in 06 and, you know, rode that up. And, and here's the reason. Interest rates are everything. You know, liquidity is everything. And like I said, it's the, it's the cost of the debt and the availability of the debt. What happened was Greenspan started raising rates in 0405. So that basically shut the real estate market off. And then, you know, they dropped rates again and that, you know, the market started spiking. And then we started getting, you know, the uh, mortgage-backed security, you know, CDOs, you know, all of the, you know, exotic thing, you know, instruments that they were creating on Wall Street to package, carve up and package the mortgages and sell them. That's what accelerated the debt issue um, or accelerated the housing you know, you know, availability of the debt because they would package up mortgages, sell it on Wall Street. So Wall Street needed more and more mortgages. So lenders would go out and lend to pretty much anybody. So there's a big fallacy. A lot of people think what caused the uh, what caused the housing crash was just the loans themselves. You know, the subprime market, the exotic loans. You know, all the different loan you know types of loans that we had on overvalued real estate, what caused the crash was rising interest rates on those loans because we all had interest-only loans. They were all adjustable. We had some negative amortization loans. They were called pay, pay option arms where you could pay a minimum payment that would negatively amortize. In other words, it would add to the back of your loan and increase the balance. You could pay an interest-only payment. You could pay a 10-year amortized or you could pay a 30-year amortized. It was called a pay option arm. Then we had just you know uh, adjustable rate mortgage when I say arm. Then we had just interest-only arms, you know, and everything was based on LIBOR in the residential market, was which was an unusual thing that really kind of drove uh, drove speculation. So it was the rising interest rates that actually triggered, you know, everything that happened in the housing market because you know interest rates started going up on all those interest-only loans. People couldn't make their payments, and that's when the whole spiral started to happen. If they would have kept rates flat and had not raised interest rates, you would have never had the problem in the housing market that we had back in 2009. When you said that you noticed a slowdown, what indicators exactly did you look at to help you make that conclusion? So first and foremost, I was a builder and we did remodeling and we did you know custom homes. Our phone stopped ringing, number one. We would get phone calls multiple times a day, every day for something. The phone stopped ringing, that's number one. Number two, for sale signs popped up everywhere. Inventory levels you know, uh, started popping or started increasing. Just to so clarify, this was which area? Real estate, Go ahead. Which area was this? This was uh, this was pretty much the whole country, but my market specifically was the Outer Banks of North Carolina up into the eastern region of Virginia, up to D.C. Those were my markets where I did deals and commercial and residential. But in general, uh, in any market, what you look for is you look for you know how many houses are available for sale, how long have they been on the market, how many are under contract, how long were they on the market. And how many are so selling and how long were they on the market before they sold? And what did they sell list price to, to closing price? And you can find all that data on realtor.com, by the way. They have really good information on everything I just said. So what started happening is prior to that 0809, um, like I was a builder. So if, if land came on the market, there'd be multiple bid, you know builders bidding on that land. And then we were building houses and selling them. And, you know, there was there was always a fair amount of inventory because that's a very unmotivated in my market, unmotivated seller's market down in the Outer Banks of North Carolina because they're vacation homes. So people would put them up for sale 
and they say, hey, if the if the property sells, great. If it doesn't, I've got income and I'll just keep it, uh, you know, until it sells. But what started happening is we started noticing more and more properties for sale, more and more inventory. Then my phone stopped ringing. People be like, again, I used to get calls all day, every day for, you know, remodeling work or for new construction to build build a house for people. That stopped. So I started kind of wondering, you know, 0405, what was going on? And I was watching the interest rates. And I knew back then. So here's the funny thing. So back then, 5% was the magic number. So whenever we got close to 5% or a little bit over, that would just bring the housing market to a complete halt. And if 0405, I've got the rates in front of me. I think rates started to hit um, you know, that 5% threshold in the you know, 0405. I had the rate chart pulled up. I don't know where it's at right now. You may have the history of the Fed funds rate. But if you watch the interest rates and you look at the housing market, you'll see a, a correlation between rising rates and dropping rates in that housing market, you know, moving up. I think the major difference based on what you've been telling me is that this time around, the housing market hasn't co collapsed yet because of the tightness in inventory, right? Is that the main reason we can attribute this to? Yeah. So here it is. I'm looking at it now. So the bottom, so 03, so rates, you know, around 2000, dot-com boom and bust. And I was, I was building back then. Um, I wasn't in the markets then, but I was building for a lot of people cashing in the markets and coming to the beach and buying houses. So we peaked at 6.5% in 2000, then rates dropped all the way down to 1%. This is Fed funds rate, um, you know, in January of 2004, then they started peaking again. That was, that was you know, the bottom of it. They started peaking again back in 04, 05. So by, you know, by November, December 05, we were at 4%, then rates, you know, went to five and a quarter by 06, 07. And then that was it, you know, that, that crashed the market getting back up to that point. But to your question, yes, the difference this time is we don't have any inventory. So back then, you would normally have around 2 million homes for sale, plus or minus nationwide. That's the average inventory level of houses, 2, 2 million homes, plus or minus during the peak of the 2008-2009 crash. It got up to 4 million. And then, uh, you know, now we've dropped down to where we've got a million or less houses for sale. So, I mean, that's why the interest rates are not affecting, you know, the housing market at this point, because there are so many people locked into low interest rates. I mean, number one, 40 percent, well, 30, about 30 percent of the houses in the United States are owned free and clear, no mortgage at all. And um, so the rest of the 60 percent, 90 percent of that 60 percent um, is below 6% rates. Out of that, um, there's 44% of those that are 3 to 4%, 20% are 4 to 5%, and 26% are less than 3%. So, I mean, when you're looking at those numbers, you're talking about 80% of the mortgages are under 5%, 90 under 6%, and 26% of that group of the 60% of houses that have mortgages, again, 30 to 40% don't even have a mortgage, they're owned free and clear, 26% are below 3%. So people just are not going to trade that in for 7% mortgage. And you've got a million less houses for sale right now than you typically have for sale in a market where you're selling four to 5 million homes a year. That's the typical rate of homes sold per year in the United States, about four to 5 million. Have you noticed housing construction starts significantly slow down at all in the last year? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Historically, yeah. Starts are down. Historically, they're up you know, year over year, probably. But, you know, everything is just really skewed since the pandemic. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's really the only only game in town right now is new construction. The problem is there's not enough labor to deliver the units. So, 
you know, with the with the you know capacity of the industry as a whole right now, it would take 10 years to build through the demand in the market right now if interest rates came back down to a normal level. But even with rates at where they are now, builders have the biggest advantage because they can offer incentives to the buyers like buy downs. So even though in the US mortgage rates are seven, seven and a half percent right now, you can actually get in in a five and a half percent interest rate because you can get what's called a buy down where the builder can buy that mortgage down so your first year would be five and a half percent, next year six and a half, third year seven and a half. Why is it that during the pandemic and just shortly after home prices exploded, real estate overall? What happened there? Because interest rates, because the interest rates, you know, the Fed cut rates to zero, the treasuries went down. So mortgage rates in the United States are based largely off the 10-year treasury because it's a risk premium. Uh, so, you know, benchmark. So investors that invest in mortgages are looking at, well, I can get a risk-free return in treasuries. Or I can take a little bit of risk and I can buy mortgages, mortgage-backed securities. So rates had everything had dropped all the way down to almost nothing during the pandemic. So we got down to you know two and three quarter percent, two point nine percent, you know, uh, long-term interest rates in the mortgage market. If you got interest only, you could get down in the mid twos. So I mean that just shot housing through the roof because people buy payments. At the end of the day, they buy payments in houses just like they do in cars. That's why cars have gone, you know, have gone up so much. Because it used to be you could only get a 30-month, 36-month loan in cars. Then it went to 48. Then it went to 60. Then it went to 72. Then it went to 84. So people walk in the dealer and they say, I can spend $1,000 a month. Do you know anybody getting a 84-month lease on a car? A loan. Not a lease. Loan. A loan. Yeah. A loan. Okay. Yeah. So that was happening because cars are up to $100,000 now for an SUV or a pickup truck, some of them. So people were people were absolutely doing that. I mean... Uh, you know, 72 used to be the longest, but yeah, they had some 84 month car loans out, out for a while. I don't know if it's still happening because a lot of the uh, a lot of the banks are pulling out of the auto market right now. More and more lenders like every day you're hearing of major lenders that are not lending on cars anymore. If you if someone were to get into the market now as a, as a let's say, first time home buyers, a primary residence, would it make more sense to get a variable rate or a fixed rate? So, you know. Variable rates, you're at risk of rates rising. With a fixed rate, you can lock in where you're at now and you can always lower the rate later. But there are some products now where you can get a variable rate and still protect yourself uh, as a homeowner so that you can, you know, you can, um, you know, you can protect against that variation. And in commercial, you can buy a rate cap. So if you get a, you know, floating rate or interest only, you know, you can, you can put a ceiling on that. But on the residential side, it's a little bit different. You know, and that's the thing. A lot of people bought houses over the last, you know, year, two years, thinking rates are going to come back down. I think at this point and at this level where rates are, I don't, I don't think they have much more upside. So I do think you, you know, the the risk reward is that rates will come down at some point. But the question is, where's the ten year yield going to be a year from now, three years from now, and that's going to, you know, be based largely on where's the economy? Are we going to be in a recession? Are we going to have, you know, a war breakout? You know, those are the types of things that affect affects that 10-year yield. So it's kind of a it's kind of a risk right now. But I think, you know, if you get an interest-only loan, you got to be able to refinance that at the end of that period. And you need to be relatively comfortable that rates are going to be, you know, either the same or more affordable when you get to that point. Okay. Well, a lot of people have been calling for a market crash in uh, residential side on the residential. We'll get to the commercial side in just a bit. But for the residential side, people have been calling for for a crash for quite some time. Uh, hasn't happened yet. One of the 
indicators people are looking at is perhaps a decline in Airbnb uh, prices, especially in the uh, Sunbelt cities. Um, is that is that a concern to you, the Airbnb sector, and perhaps a slowdown there leading to a wider sell-off? No, no, not at all. And, you know, let's bring a little perspective to the housing market. Now, this is United States. Um, so the total value of the housing stock in the United States right now is about $47 trillion. $47 trillion, okay? Uh, there are about 82 million houses in the United States. So I just told you we have about a million for sale, 82 million single family homes in the United States. There's about a million for sale. Now that's single family. You add townhouses and duplexes and quads, anything that's under five units is residential. That'll bring that up over hundred million in terms of the stock um, you know, of, of houses in the, in the country. When you start looking at Airbnb properties or short-term rentals, there might be a million you know, uh, in inventory, maybe 1.5 out there. So if all of them all of a sudden were put up for sale, so here's the statistics. So there's about 1.5 million units for rent in like Airbnb, VRBO, short-term rentals, things like that. What we don't know is how many of those are single family homes? Because when you're when you're talking about Airbnb, you know, hotel rooms are on there, um, bedrooms are on there, other accessory living areas within houses are on there, you know, rooms over garages, ADUs, accessory dwelling units, like a shed in your backyard that you turned into like a little cottage. Um, trailers, shipping containers. There's a lot of Airbnb listings that are not full-on houses. that are not single-family detached homes, individual homes, VRBO. They're nothing but homes. And then most of the professional property managers, all they rent are homes, um, you know, condos, townhouses, apartments, things like that. So that 1.3 million, you know, listings that are out there, I'm not, I'm not sure they're all single-family, but let's say they are. So if they're all single family and they all all of a sudden hit the market, well, I just told you we're over a million units short right now anyways. So they would most likely get absorbed. So it's just such a small representation. Again, 1.3 million units. Let's assume they are all single family. There's 82 million houses in the country, you know, and what was it? Uh, where'd it go? Uh, yeah, $47 trillion in value. So it's just so insignificant and small that is not going to ever cause a housing crash. It's yeah, the, the the scale has to be put in perspective. You're right. I think, um, and uh, we can comment on this. Is it mainly also psychological? If you see your neighbor selling their Airbnb property, you're thinking, okay, maybe something's up. Maybe I should start selling my home. Do you ever see that cascading effect happen in the real estate market? Not for this. Not for this scenario. So let's let's again put context. So the Airbnb, the segment of the Airbnb market that's struggling is during the pandemic, people couldn't leave the United States, probably couldn't leave Canada. You couldn't travel abroad. So people were just taking any house in any neighborhood anywhere in America and turn it into an Airbnb. So if you lived in some suburb in the middle of, you know, Iowa, and there's no reason for that to be an Airbnb, but somebody said, you know what, never been to Iowa. Here's an Airbnb house. Let's go rent. So if that all of a sudden starts struggling and that person needs to do something with the house, it's already furnished, so they're going to have options. What do I do? If I can't make the payments, I need to I need to do something with this house. The first thing I'm going to try to do is convert it. Can I convert it into a midterm rental, furnished, turnkey furnished rental, which you can get more than you know a, a standard year-round rental, um, or I can turn it into a standard year-round rental and offer it furnished, um, or I just put it up for sale. And again, there's so little inventory right now that you know you put the house up for sale, it's probably going to sell if it's a good house in a decent area, you know, for market value. But to your point, if there's a distressed situation 
and somebody sells the house for 30% less than what it should have gone for, that can affect values if, if it's systemic and it starts to kind of trickle through, but it would have to be systemic. So you would, it wouldn't have to be just your neighbor's house. It would have to be 10 houses in your neighborhood of 100 homes to really kind of create a problem. And they'd all have to be for sale at the same time. If it's just one house that gets sold because of distress and there's nothing else for sale, people are going to still pay whatever the price is that you're asking, you know, potentially for your house, if you're in a good market, things like that. And we're still seeing that now, even with today's interest rates, uh, as high as they are in certain markets, houses are still selling in days with multiple offers for more than you're asking. Uh, the rental market doesn't seem to be uh, cooling down anytime soon. It depends which data you're looking at. If you're looking at, like, let's say, the uh, BLS, uh, their shelter index has been falling, but I think that's because they use uh, rent uh, owner's equivalent rent, which is how much owners think they'll be charging for rent, not actual rent. Uh, if you look at a report by uh, Zumper, for example, the um, rental website, um, they've got a national rent report that they release regularly as of August 29th, so three weeks ago. Some notable trends. Uh, the national median for a one-bedroom home is $1,510, representing a 0.3% month-over-month increase and a 1.6% year-over-year increase. Um, does this Is this uh, in line with your expectations that rent has continued to go up slightly? Yeah. And again, it's, it's all, it's all, you know, uh, local, every market's different. It's all local. I work with people all over the country, uh, you know, with investment properties, residential and multifamily, nobody's dropping rents. They're all raising rents because that's the only way the business model works. So the business model is you buy a property, you add value to raise the rents. I mean, that's how you make money in real estate as an investor. So I don't know anybody personally that's lowering rents. Now I have heard there are markets and I am seeing reports in some markets where rents are coming back, but you got to remember that we, you, know, you have to put everything into context. So housing prices may have dipped in some areas, but you're still 30 to 40% above where they were before the pandemic in 2020, before that, you know, record spike and, in, in, you know, record low interest rates, record inflation and in prices, the housing market appreciated, appreciated 30 to 40%, 50 in some areas in two years. Rents have done the same thing. Rents have doubled, tripled and quadrupled in some markets over the last couple of years, because of the same reason. People were paying a lot of money for these properties. And the only way they can make it work because the cap rates at you know three, four percent. If you're buying a three cap multifamily building, the only way you can make that work is you've got to get the rents up 20%. Well, if you're paying $2,000 a month, a 20% rent bump's not significant over a couple of years. So we've seen rents spike 30, 40% over a couple of years. So if they come back 10%, you're still 20 to 30% above where they were before the pandemic. So Again, that's the disinflation conversation. Same thing with car prices. Yeah, prices were coming down, but the rate at which they were going up started slowing first, maybe in some markets. The question is, what's coming down? You know, is the rate that the car prices are appreciating coming down or are cars coming down in general? Same thing with rents. You know, rents might be coming down a little bit, but they're still well above where they were to begin with. So, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you really haven't made a dent in that market yet. So what is your outlook for residential housing? Um, we can talk about the price. We can talk about the rent um, uh, price as well. Uh, people, again, a lot of people have been calling for a crash for various reasons. Is that in the cards for you for the next year? No, there's there's no way. So let's define a crash. A crash is probably 30 to 50% you know, uh, off house prices. And even at these levels, if you crash 30 to 50%, you're back where you were at 2020 before, you know, before the pandemic. 
So what would be a real crash in this scenario? You'd have to come below pre-pandemic levels, but let's just say 30 to 50% from where they're at now, that just isn't possible without doubling the inventory overnight. You'd have to double your inventory overnight in order for that to happen because there's just no inventory out there and people are still in most markets. Every market's different. There's some properties in some markets that aren't selling, but most good properties and good markets are selling quickly. We're seeing people, uh, listings are down right now. Typically when you see at a time of year going into the fall, listings typically go up, activity picks up. We're seeing the opposite happen and we're seeing prices still go up. So I don't think a housing crash is in the cards anytime soon. I think it's gonna take a couple of years at 7% plus interest rates in the United States to you know make an impact on the housing market and give builders time to catch up and build some inventory. That's really the only only thing we have going for us right now is the builders are building as fast as they can. So basically what you're okay, so one of the assumptions that people made, and maybe this is incorrect, is that mortgage rates have gone higher and so people aren't able to afford mortgage rates at eight percent above and above even seven percent, they're gonna start defaulting. We haven't seen that yet. We're seeing credit card delinquencies rise up, but that's a different story. Okay. So they haven't started defaulting yet. Again, is that primarily because people have locked in rates um that were lower, or is it because people actually could afford eight percent? Which is it? Right. So that again, that's a very small segment. Remember, 40% of the houses are unfree and clear. There's no debt on them. 40% of the inventory, 30 to 40% free and clear. With the remaining 60 to 70% that have debt, remember, 90% of that is below, you know, 6%. 80% is below 5%. You know, th- what was it? 20 or 30% is below 3%. So those are long-term mortgages. Those aren't interest-only adjustable. Those are long-term mortgages. You know, a lot of people locked into that 3% 30-year mortgage. So the ones that you're talking about are people that have bought in the last couple of years expecting for rates to decrease that bought in at 7%, uh, 8%. Now they're, you know, depleting their savings. They can't afford it. You know, they're not able to refinance. So there are there is going to be some distress. There are going to be some foreclosures. There always are in every market. We're starting to see that tick up a little bit. But right now, delinquencies, I think, on mortgages are only like 3.3%. That's well, it. Could you make a general statement that just because interest rates, because we talk about interest rates a lot, um, we know that historically when interest rates come down, that's when prices go up. But could you also make the argument that when interest rates go up, uh, because of what we discussed, because of the reason that people don't want to refinance at a higher rate, that it, that could actually be positive for the market as well? Interest rates go up, be positive for the housing market? Yeah, because exactly like yeah. we discussed, because people don't want to sell their primary residence if they only have one home and then buy another home at a higher rate, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's going to keep, and that's why we've seen prices go up because a, every seller is a consumer of a housing unit. They either have to buy something else or they have to rent something else. So that's keeping pressure on the market. And with people out of the market that don't want to sell because you know every buyer a lot of times is a seller as well. So that imbalance is keeping pressure on prices right now. And you know, something has to give somewhere. And the only thing that's going to give right now is to keep building more and more inventory. So what does cause a crash? When you have normal supply and demand metrics, when you've normally got two to three million houses on the market and interest rates start to go up, people, you know, people can't pay as much. So prices will come down. But if you say a crash, and, and that's the other thing too. So the mortgages that are out there that have been originated over the last, you know, since 2008, nine. I mean, the borrowers are healthy. They're putting a good percentage down. They have strong balance sheets. They have good credit scores. They've got good jobs. 
you have a much different environment now than we've ever had in the history of the housing market. You have a much healthier borrower. You have much lower interest rates that they're locked in at. Um, and you and you've got you know good qualified people that have borrowed on those loans. So you know what's going to cause a housing crash? I mean, the only thing that causes a housing crash is when you reach oversupply. I mean, typically in the history of the housing, it's over it's supply and demand. You reach oversupply, prices come down, market crashes a little bit, then you build, 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 and you overbuild again. And you know you kind of go through those peaks and valleys all the way back to the '90s, the savings and loan crisis, all the way into you know, that late, late nineties, when I bought my first home, we were, we were oversupplied, interest rates were up and the housing market was very soft. It wasn't a crash, but it was very soft. Um, you know, the only real crash we've seen has been 0809. And that was a, that was a mortgage, um, you know, a systemic mortgage issue that was going on there because there were bad loans given to unqualified people at an interest rate that they couldn't afford when it went up. So if interest rates would have stayed down, you would have never had the mortgage crisis that we had. The only reason we had a crisis because rates went up and triggered the you know the unaffordable unaffordability index of the in place mortgages versus this time around the mortgages are healthy they're long term they're low interest rates and people can afford the payments now there again there are some investors that have speculated there's a few you know short term rentals there's a few people that bought expecting rates to come down that they're going to get stuck the other thing that we have this time around that we didn't have last time is we have forbearance um, you know, through the pandemic, you know, banks now, they will send you a workout letter, whether you ask for one or not. So banks don't want to foreclose. They want to work the deal out with you. The last time they weren't doing that, they were just foreclosing. So banks are willing to work with borrowers now. You know, banks don't want to have foreclosures on their books. They don't want to be taking properties back. So, I mean, it's just a whole different paradigm that we've never seen in housing. So it's going to take a massive, massive event to tank the housing market. And that would be, you can't borrow money and that money is way too expensive. I mean, that's the only thing that's going to really affect the housing market because you can still borrow money. And, uh, you know, the government's talking about, you know, given 1% down payment loans, Zillow's got a program where you can put no money down or 1%. They're talking about 40-year mortgages, you know, down payment assistance. So in this unhealthy, you know, exorbitant housing market, you know, that we're in right now, the government wants to come out and stimulate more opportunities for people to buy housing at these prices. It makes no sense. Okay. Let's talk about commercial real estate. Now, uh, Elon Musk said in a tweet in June, he said, commercial real estate is melting down fast. Home values next. All right. We've already talked about homes extensively, but is he right that, first of all, two-part question, commercial real estate is the next tipping point, and then home values follow a collapse in commercial real estate. Does that typically happen? No, no, that that doesn't happen. The commercial and residential markets are completely different and completely detached. And you know, everybody back when the housing market crashed was saying the commercial real estate market was going to crash, and it didn't. So the commercial real estate market is a very different animal than housing. You know, so again, I always like to put context to everything. You know, the commercial um, real estate market is about $30 trillion in value in the United States. And there's about 1.5 trillion uh, in debt that has to be worked out in the next 18 to 24 months. So when you think about that again, 28 to $30 trillion of the value, out of that only about 1.5 trillion is coming due in the next year and a half to two years. And that's what's coming due. Just because it's coming due doesn't mean it has to be worked out at that time. This could be dragged out for three or four years, which is what we saw in 0809. That's why the commercial market didn't crash in 0809. It's a very different financing vehicle. 
Uh, it's a very different investor that's investing in those. So what we're seeing now is, you know, kind of like we saw back there with certain properties, you know, investors are just turning the keys over to the bank and just walking away. And the banks are okay because it's equity investors that have put the down payments on commercial real estate. Most commercial real estate is financed, you know, 60 to 70, 75%. Some of it, multifamily might get up to 80, 85%. But in general, across the board, commercial real estate, you're only borrowing 60 to 70% of what you paid for the property. The other 30 to 40% is put down typically by equity investors. So when a property gets turned back over to the bank, the equity investors get wiped out. The equity investors can be you and me that invested in a syndication or any average individual investor, or it could be a pension fund, or it could be a life insurance company, or it can be a you know a equity fund or a hedge fund that invests in alternative assets. Those are the ones that are getting wiped out. So the bank is left with that asset at about a 60 to 70% basis of what the investor paid. So they're able to usually get out you know, by being made whole because they're selling it at a discount because the equity got wiped out. Or maybe they're going to take a 10% haircut on that. And most banks have that written into their business plan. And most banks' exposure to commercial real estate is less than 10% of their entire uh, balance sheet anyways. Well, okay. But uh, I understand what you're saying. Just to push back on that, the counterpoint may be, all right, well, there's no, it doesn't matter who owns what, there's no way that the commercial space overall could survive this work from home culture that seems to be more permeated than even uh, business owners thought. You see people actually, businesses actually seeing employees quitting en masse when they're called back to the office. Apparently the labor market's still tight, but let's talk about that. <laughs> That's a t topic for another conversation. H how would you respond to the fact that work from home is going to completely wipe out commercial real estate? So you're you're so when you talk about commercial real estate, you got to understand what that is. So commercial real estate is multifamily, it's office, it's retail, it's industrial, it's hospitality, hotels, uh, and then within that, there's a bunch of different subtypes like right. self storage mobile home parks, things like that. So what you're talking about is one very small sector, maybe about a fifth of the entire 28 trillion. Office is probably only a fifth of that. So in, in office is only in certain areas. But to your question about back to work, that's kind of reversing. So a lot of companies now are requiring people to come back to work, but a lot of them do have too much, you know, too much square footage anyways. They're trying to reduce their footprint. They're getting out of leases. WeWork's imploding. So yeah, the office sector is definitely imploding. I mean, you're definitely going to see probably 50% contraction in that space in most areas. A lot of those buildings are getting repurposed into, you know, multifamily and mixed use. A lot of them are getting torn down and redeveloped all over, you know, into something else, just like we saw with shopping malls. You know, so I would say look at commercial office like we saw what happened in shopping malls. All the real estate got repurposed. It wasn't a disaster and it's not systemic. You could eliminate all of the commercial office space, put it all in default all across the country all across the world. And it wouldn't impact the commercial real estate market as a whole because there's so many other assets that make up that $28 trillion. Could people converting offices into apartments, could that solve the uh, lack of inventory problem for housing? In some areas, you know, some buildings can't be converted because the, the footprint's just too big, you know, or the building in and of itself just doesn't make sense. It's obsolete, so you got to tear it down. But yeah, so that's already happening in New York. You know, it's putting more and more units on the market in New York where the inventory levels for rentals are way down again and demand is up. So that will take a lot of pressure off of the housing market in bigger cities where there's no inventory. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been a great talk. Thank you very much. Where can we learn more about your work? I know you, um, uh, you're an investor. You also do some courses on real estate investing. Uh, tell us about your work and uh, where we can follow you. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, I also have a YouTube channel. So gregdickerson.com. That's where all my info lives, uh, all of my stuff on my YouTube channel. I talk about, you know, entrepreneurship, real estate investing. I talk about markets, crypto, entrepreneurship, leadership, mindset. I mean, I've got almost 2000 videos on my YouTube channel that I've built up over the last few years. Um, just talking about anything and everything, entrepreneurship and investing. I mean, so that's me, serial entrepreneur, a real estate investor and developer. You know, I've, I've built multiple companies and exited them. I've been investing in real estate and developing real estate since 1997. Um, you know, so it's it's uh, everything I know and have learned that I'm kind of sharing just like on this video right here. And, you know, my perspective on, you know, macro markets, economic events, things like that. Again, I'm no geopolitical expert, but, you know, I can take a look at what's going around, listen to the experts and, you know, form my, you know, pragmatic opinions and decisions, you know, based on what I'm seeing around the world and what's going on at any given time. And, you know, a lot of different experiences, you know, that, I, that I'm sharing in, in all of my content. Okay. Fantastic. And um, I believe you also have a, a course on verified investing education, right? Yeah, we have one coming with verified investing. That's where Gareth Soloway has all his courses. So uh, yeah, there's one coming soon. It's going to launch in October. So keep your eyes out for that. And, um, you know, that's really good. It's everything I know and have learned over the last 30 years, investing in all types of real estate, doing all types of real estate deals, uh, residential, commercial, multifamily, and real estate development. It's 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 uh, quite a robust course. Excellent. All right. Well, Greg, thank you very much for, uh, for your time today and for educating us. We'll put the links down below to your work. See you next time. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And thank you for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe.